Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Psalm 101. Psalm 101, a psalm written by David as you are making your way over to Psalm 101. Some of you may be wondering, uh, why are we making a big deal out of Black History Month? I think that's just a great and fair question. Uh, one of the ways I've always tried to um, answer that question uh, is in an analogous fashion to, to just talk about the time some years ago. Uh, our whole family, we've got three boys. My wife, we got in a plane, we went to Scottsdale, Arizona, where she grew up, uh, and we spent about five or six hours one afternoon together, and my wife was just kind of taking us on her childhood tour, and she shows us the little apartment complex she grew up at, and we got out and looked at the playground and got back in the car and went to the little Catholic school for elementary school she went to, and then she showed us the all-girls uh, high school she went to, and we stopped by a Mexican restaurant that she uh, ate at every single uh, Friday night with her folks, and by this time, my boys are like, shoot me now. Uh, I hate this. Why are we doing this? This has nothing to do with me, and I just kind of had to tell them, we're family, and I know you didn't grow up in Scottsdale, Arizona, and this is foreign to you, but a, a person that we love dearly, my wife, your mama, this is her story, and because we love her... Uh, we just kind of roll up our sleeves and say, let's go on the tour and tell us all about it. Well, here at the Summit Church, we're one family made up of people uh, who are different than us. And I think, I won't even put it in a Christian box. I just think a part of what it means to be a good human being is we listen to one another's stories. And so that's why we are doing what we're doing during Black History Month. Psalm 101, it's a psalm written by David. Uh, verse 2, David makes a declaration, I will walk in integrity. And that one word, integrity, canvases the whole text, and therefore, it's going to encompass our whole time of study in God's word today. I, I want to talk about, let's just get right to it, I want to talk to you about integrity. Yeah, I didn't think I'd get any hand claps on that. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be met with any sense of euphoria. And let me tell you why, because many of you are like me in that all the messages that I've ever heard in my life on integrity, I never leave feeling good about myself. I always leave messages on integrity feeling like I am the biggest loser in the world. I always leave saying, I got to read my Bible more. I got to pray more. Uh, man, I got to love my wife more. I'm, you know, I'm a big loser with my kids. I got to be more present. Like, I just, like, integrity messages get an A plus for inducing guilt and an F for inspiring hope. That's probably why you didn't clap. Here's one of the big dangers of integrity messages. At least I'll just put it in my own kind of experience. All the messages that I've heard uh, on integrity, it, they tend to produce one of two kinds of people. Uh, on one extreme, you will produce kind of moralistic, self-righteous, pharisaical, judgmental, 
condemning um, any other bad words I can use to describe it, individuals who will just kind of leave these messages going, man, I'm, I'm just going to do better. Uh, I'm going to get that internet filter. I'm going to be more present. I'm going to read more. Do and, and so you might experience seasons or waves of success in that. And so here's what will happen to you. Instead of basing your performance on Christ's performance for you, you'll start kind of comparing other people and looking down your noses at them and you'll just be this judgmental individual that no one will ever want to be around. On the other extreme, you will produce hopeless rebels. So if I kind of just give it to you in integrity, you gotta do more, do more, do more. Some people are like, man, I, I can't ever do that, so why even try? So now you see the challenge on our hands. How do we approach integrity? Well, we approach it the way David did, and I know what you're thinking. It's quite interesting. David is writing on integrity. We'll deal with that. Look how David, right out of the gates, deals with the subject of integrity. This is a game changer. He says in verse one, I will sing of, underline this phrase, steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. Right out the gates, this royal psalm, all about integrity, he now begins, not necessarily with integrity, but with the foundation of integrity, which he says is God's steadfast love. And I believe this phrase, steadfast love, which is one word in the original language that David is writing in, it's the Hebrew word said. I believe said is the most important word in all of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, if not in all of the Bible. It is used some 250 times in the Old Testament, 127 of those 250 times it is used in the Psalms. I don't think you can understand your Bible. I don't think you can understand the Christian faith without understanding the idea of this phrase, has said Hebrew word, uh, is, is said the English phrase, steadfast love. It is God's character played out on our behalf. It is, as Michael Card says, this is the best definition I've seen. Look at it with me. How do we define God's steadfast love? Here it is. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. Boy, that's some shouting stuff. I know you didn't clap on integrity, but you can clap on that. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. If you just kind of read through the Bible, you keep bumping in to picture after picture of God's incredible steadfast love has said on our behalf. It is God frustrated with his people who keep his phrase uh, whoring after other gods. And it is God coming to Hosea saying, listen, Hosea, I, I, I need to use you as my divine show and tell for my said, my steadfast love uh, for my people. I know you just graduated from Southeastern Seminary. I know you've got the MDiv. I know you just got called to pastor that church. And I know you're still single, but I've picked out a wife for you. Her name is Gomer. Again, if it's me, I'm not smiling anymore when I hear her name Gomer. I haven't met a cute Gomer in my life. Um, but what does she do, God? She's a prostitute. Chapter three, she cheats on him. God says, go get her because your marriage is not about your marriage. It's an illustration of my incredible steadfast love for my people. And I need to, for you to do to Gomer what I do for you and my people every single day. I don't give up. 
She has no right to expect anything from you. Give her everything. It's Luke 15. Younger brother says, give me my share of the inheritance now. Takes it off into a far country. I think the Greek word for far country is Las Vegas. And he squanders it. He wastes it on immoral living. At the end of himself, he says, I'll go back home and grovel. I'll sell myself not as a son, but as a servant. Maybe my father will, maybe he will accept me. He goes back, his father says, I'll have none of that. Kill the fattened calf, put the robe on him, cue the DJ. We're Cupid shuffling all night. I know you have no right to expect anything from me, but I'm gonna give you everything. And friends, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm a wretch. Just this week, how many times have I failed God? How many times have I not measured up? And yet I am here today because even though I have no right to expect anything from him in Christ, he has given me everything. That's where David roots integrity. (laughs) That's where he roots it. He doesn't root it in my moral strivings. He roots our integrity in God's integrity on our behalf. That's why why Paul would tell Timothy, when we are faithless, God is faithful. We are here today because God's integrity. So how do I define integrity? How do I I define integrity? I define it this way. If you miss this, you'll miss this little Sunday school lesson I'm trying to give you. Here it is. Integrity is our surrendered response to God's covenantal steadfast love lived out in relationship with others. It's It's our surrendered response. Sort of like, um, it's amazing what my mind remembers. I remember uh, my, my father was planting a church in Dallas. Actually, he was planting two churches at the same time in two different states, Dallas and Mississippi. Sure, there's some unhealth there, uh, but anyways, get out of my business. Um, so uh, we're planting a church in Dallas. I'm about three years old, and my mother decides it's time that I learned how to swim. And um, I, I'll never forget, we go to the local YMCA, and she just kind of hands me over to this stranger. And this stranger just kind of takes me into this to this pool never been in before and I'm freaking out and her method in teaching me how to swim did not begin with kind of the movements. It began with her teaching me how to float. And if you understand how to float, you know floating is all about surrendering to the, to the water. It's counterintuitive. Everything in us I'm, I'm, I'm in this way, as a three-year-old, I'm freaking out, I'm in fear, so I, I gotta strive. No, 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 I need to do something counterintuitive. I just want you to surrender. Yeah, 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 we're gonna learn how to swim, which means I'm gonna teach you your role in this, but your activity doesn't begin with your activity, it begins with your surrender. <laughs> David begins the lesson on integrity, not with, I gotta go home, I gotta do more, I can't do that, I can't do, I gotta do, no, 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 no. 
It just begins with peering and gazing at God's incredible steadfast love to me. It begins with kind of me peering at the rearview mirror of my life and seeing I am a wretch undone. I am a great sinner, but praise God, I have a great Savior. He is one who has given me everything I want to out of response to that. Live a life. Live a life of integrity. I, I, I want to give myself to that. So what is integrity? It's, it's my surrendered response to God's covenantal love lived out in relationship to others. We come now to Psalm 101, and Psalm 101, most scholars label it as a royal psalm. You should, you should know this. Some scholars even go so far as to say that Psalm 101 was actually penned by David to be a song that he would sing at his own inauguration. Isn't that something? And here's David. I can kind of see him. It's his inauguration, his coronation as king. Just read Psalm 101. Read it as a song. And he gets up and, and he is singing of the kind of person he will be and the kind of leaders in his cabinet and his administration they will be. He, he, he's not talking about his foreign policy. He's not talking about his economic strategy. He just gets up and just sings, this is the kind of person I will be. I will be a person of integrity. I mean, can you imagine Joe Biden or Donald Trump at the inauguration just getting up and, and singing Psalm 101? This is what you can expect from me. I'm not going to give you foreign policy. I'm not going to talk about my military strategy. You can count on I will be a person of integrity, and so will my administration and cabinet. But as we read Psalm 101, it's very important that you understand this. David does not posture integrity as moral perfection. Integrity is not moral perfection. We, we know this in several ways. One way, just, just kind of peruse the words David uses. For example, in verse three, he says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is, here it is, worthless. Verse four, he talks about a perverse heart. Verse five, he talks about people who are haughty and arrogant. Verse seven, he talks about no one who, here it is, practices deceit or utters lies. Uh, verse eight, morning by morning, I will destroy all the, here it is, wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers. You don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out, that, that when David is talking about sin, he's not talking about kind of actions as much as he is talking about patterns of behavior. Very important you understand this. Integrity is not moral perfection. If that's the case, none of us have a shot. David is getting at patterns of behavior. Now, now just get the chronology. You understand this. Let's just deal with the elephant in the room. Psalm 101, his inauguration song is years before 
he would have his notorious fall. Commits adultery, Bathsheba. Tries to cover it up by committing murder. Most scholars tell us that in Psalm 32, that's David reflecting on that span of his life where he didn't confess and repent. Most scholars tell us that between Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, one year goes by in silence until a guy named Nathan comes, calls him out. David immediately confesses, I'm the man. And then I want you to look with me at his epitaph, Acts chapter 13. This is David's epitaph. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. If I could say it another way, his epitaph reads, David was a man of integrity. Wait a minute, I thought he committed adultery. Yes. There's a big difference between committing adultery and being an adulterer. Integrity is not moral perfection. Of all the people I've met in my life, and I've met a lot, no offense, my father's my favorite. I've never met a person more full of integrity than my dad. Not a perfect man, please. Don't play golf with him. His most dangerous stick is his pencil on the golf course. All of a sudden, he forgets math. It's another subject for another time. <laughs> My dad failed me many times growing up, many times. But you know what I remember decades later from a very flawed man? Do you know what I remember decades later? His apologies. And dad would mess up royally. And there'd be times that I remember sitting in, in junior high Somebody comes over the intercom, Brian Loritz, please come to the office. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I go down to the office, there's my father. I'm like, what did I do? My father, coat and tie, would squat down, look me in the eyes. And at times, I could even see tears welling up in his eyes. Son, I'm sorry for. The Holy Spirit has convicted me. I was on my way to work, and he reminded me how I failed you. And I just had to make a U-turn and come to school. Will you forgive me? Now, I know what you, I know what you, you, you want to know. Well, what did he do? You know what's interesting? It would take me a minute to think about it. But I don't have to think about his confession and repentance and apologies. In fact, I believe confession and repentance are deep acts of integrity. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to blow it. It's not about our sin. It's about how we respond. So now I want to end this little teaching time the way David does. What is integrity? Integrity is our surrendered response to God's covenantal love, lived out in relationship with others. Well, Brian, what does integrity look like? David now gives us, and this is a real simple word, he gives us the anatomy of integrity. In other words, when you read Psalm 101, if you were to really press David and say, David, just kind of show me, put this in some shoe leather, what does integrity look like? He goes, well, integrity looks like our feet 
our eyes and our arms. He gives us the anatomy of integrity. And I love it. David's approach is an, is an inspiring one. In other words, when he talks about our feet, when he says, I will walk in integrity, he doesn't talk about what we should walk away from. He talks about what we should walk towards. When David talks about our eyes. He doesn't just talk about what we shouldn't look at. He also talks about what we should look at. When David talks about our arms, those people we lock arms with in relationship, he doesn't just talk about the kind of people you should avoid. He also talks about the kind of people you should embrace. What does integrity look like? Uh, he begins by dealing with our feet. In verse two, look at it again with me. David says, I will walk. I will walk in integrity. The idea there in the Hebrew, uh, you understand this, is that he's not being literal. He's not literally talking about putting one foot in front of the other. And, and instead, that the idea of the word walk speaks to how we conduct our lives. Context, David says, I have made up my mind. I'm going to conduct my life in integrity. In other words, integrity begins with a decision. All of, the, all of the women and men that I, that I look at, that, 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 that I just adore as kind of being examples to me of integrity, every single person uh, that, that I go, man, this person is walking in integrity. They're, they're people who at some point in their life made the decision. In, in other words, you don't bump into integrity like it's an old college roommate you hadn't seen in decades at a Starbucks. Integrity doesn't happen by happenstance or coincidence. It's a decision. Not only that, David also says it's a daily decision. Well, you look at, we, at, uh, at verse eight with me. In verse eight, David talks about morning by morning, all of this under the head of integrity. Integrity, it's a daily thing where, where every day David kind of renews his commitment to live a life in surrendered response to God's covenantal love, lived out in relationship with others. It's daily, and I think, I think the reason why it's got to be daily is because David understands the fragility of integrity. Integrity is so fragile you can spend a lifetime building it. And one wrong move derails you. Morning by morning. Thirdly, it's costly. Again, verse eight, David says, morning by morning, I will destroy. This sounds so harsh. He's, he's talking about the wrong kinds of people. Again, he's not talking about people who sin, but, but people who refuse to repent of their sin. David says, I'm not playing around with that. 
I, I will destroy. I, I, can, I can talk to you about the pain in my own life of, of losing relationships with dear individuals. I'm thinking about one of my, one of my groomsmen, man. We, 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 we just logged a lot of time in prayer and all this other stuff. And, and then he just gets off into sin. And man, numerous times, me and some other friends sit him down to challenge, but he was just steadfast. I'm not changing. I'm not moving from this. And at some point you have to go. Either you're going to have to kind of retire this relationship or you're going to sacrifice your relationship with Christ. And this is, I, I think, the challenge of social media. I love social media. I'm on social media. I post a lot on social media. <laughs> but, but here's the challenge of social media. Forgive the harshness of these words. The challenge of social media is it doesn't let you close doors. Let me say it another way. There's some people I just never need to see again. I never need to hear from you again. The Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs> but the last time I saw you, you had a mullet circa 1991, and we was doing it anyways. I don't ever need to talk to you again. I can't tell you how many times I've just sat with people and an old girlfriend slides into the DMs and just kind of this little bit of exchange. And I know you haven't done anything inappropriate, but there's something too. All of a sudden, I gotta hide my phone when my wife comes in the room because I'm having this conversation. You know, integrity comes from the Latin integer, which means whole. The opposite of that is compartmentalization. <laughs> but notice the location for integrity. David says, I will walk with integrity of heart. Hear it now. Not in church at 9.39 on Sunday mornings. I will walk with integrity, not just in small group. I will walk with integrity, David says, in my house. To put it in my terms, Brian, integrity for you doesn't begin on a stage. It begins around your dinner table. I just turned the big 5-0 last week. I, um, I got my AARP card. <laughs> Ain't no shame in my game. I think I get half off at Piccadilly. Um, do they even have Piccadillys out here? I don't know. Um, so Corey and I, my, my, my wife and I, we, we, we went out of town to celebrate and just, just her and I. And um, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling really introspective. I think part of that's, you know, I'm 50. Um, I think another part of that is I got my oldest son is in Phoenix. My middle son just landed in Spain yesterday. He's going to, he's working over there. And I got my, my youngest is about to take off uh, uh, with an organization called Crew. And he's going to be running sports camps and sharing the gospel in Zimbabwe and Thailand and India. And so we're about to be, I hope you're clapping for me being an empty nester because that was my whole point. <laughs> So I, I'm really introspective right now. And so last week, you know, my wife and I, uh, the other week we'd gotten out of town and I'm, I'm walking and we're walking together and I, I just kind of in a moment of vulnerability just going, how am I doing as a dad? And uh, we had a good talk. 
I, I don't ask that question of anybody else. Her opinion really matters to me. I tell young preachers all the time, the moment my wife can't come to church and excitedly take notes of my messages because she sees a huge disparity between who I am on stage and who I am in my house, it's time for me to give it up. David says, I'm going to walk in integrity in my house. Secondly, though, David moves from the feet to the eyes. Again, verse 2, David says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will ponder, I will ponder. That phrase, I will ponder, it is one Hebrew word. It means to gaze at, it means to uh, contemplate, it means to look at intently. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word that was actually used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, so when the woman, here it is, saw, saw, saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. The the Hebrew word for saw is the same Hebrew word used in our text for I will ponder, which means she didn't just pass by the fruit, glance at it, she stopped and stared. What is David showing us? There's a direct correlation between what, we, what our eyes land on and the direction of our feet. That's why David would go on to say, verse three, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Every time I read Psalm 113, I always think of the time I went to my mentor's house for the first time many, many years ago. He's got six kids. I walk into his house for the first time. I plop down in his TV room. There I see his TV, big TV mounted on the wall. And right underneath it is Psalm 101, verse three. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I'm like, man, that's genius. <laughs> it's hard to watch Game of Thrones with Psalm 101, three looking at you. I think what David understands, I think what my mentor understands is this little principle. What we behold, we become. What we behold, we become. Now hear me, hear me, hear me. Let's not go, let's not go legalistic. But notice what David comes out the gate saying he's beholding. The steadfast love of God. That's what I'm fixated on. That's what has my attention. That's what moves the needle. What we behold, we become. Henry Nouwen was an Ivy League professor who years ago got a unique opportunity to go to an art museum that uh, was showing some of the famous Rembrandt's original works. He was excited to get there because he wanted to see Rembrandt's classic, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And so uh, he writes of this in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, how he gets to the art museum, he goes straight to this one piece, doesn't look at any other pieces and sits there for three hours. Like he closes the place down, security guard has to tell him, uh, uh, Dr. Nouwen, uh, we're closing 
amazing. You gotta go. So he escorts him out. The next day, Nowen's back for another three hours. And then Nowen would say these words of his time beholding this painting. Look at it with, you, with me. Much happened in the months and years that followed. Even though the extreme fatigue left me and I returned to a life of teaching and traveling, Rembrandt's embrace remained, hear it now, imprinted on my soul. It had brought me into touch with something within me that lies far beyond the ups and downs of a busy life, something that represents the ongoing yearning of the human spirit, the yearning for a final return, an unambiguous sense of safety, a lasting home. Here's what he does. He gets back. He was a professor at Harvard. He quits his job, accepts a call to work with the disabled in Canada, reorients his life around grace, starts to write about this stuff, all because he spent several days and about six hours beholding something. Now, and we'll tell you what we behold, we become. If I can talk to the teenagers in the room for a minute. Having had teenage boys... I know the constant, hey, Dad, can I download this? Hey, Dad, can I download this music? Can I download this music? And I just said, yeah, 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 yeah. We can talk about you downloading anything. Let's just make this agreement. I just want you to print out the, the lyrics first, and let's just read them together. It's amazing the request kind of diminished a little bit after that. And then they would respond this way. That is just music. I said, look, you know, mom and dad, we are not legalistic at all. Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life, that's gotta be in heaven. Miles Davis has gotta be in heaven. Like that's gotta be the background music of the new covenant. I just believe that. <laughs> Drake, not so sure. I said, buddy, you, you just know we're not legalistic. We, 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 we want you to have a heart for this stuff. We want you to go after, after Jesus. But, but here's what I want you to see. You can't spend all your time beholding Drake and then wonder why you don't look like Christ. Let's not go legalistic. I want to inspire my sons. Behold his steadfast love. Behold a Jesus who has died for you. Like, like live into that. Live, live out of response to that. It can't be, I can't listen to that music. That's not gonna last. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. What are you beholding? Is it money? Is it relationships? What we behold, we become. Finally, David ends by going from the feet to the eyes and now the arms. Now he's talking about people he will and will not do 
life with. Here is David beginning in verse five on through the balance of our text. He now turns to this vital issue of relationships and he connects who we do life with in the journey of integrity. He says, for example, verse five, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. I'll never forget one time my dad told me, I, I, I was in my early 20s. My dad told me, pay very close attention to how a person talks about other people. Make no mistakes. They will talk about you the same way. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. That phrase shall minister to me. It was used of the servants and the king's servants got into close proximity to David. Here's what David is saying. I'm very discerning. Let me use another D word. I'm very discriminating over who gets close to me. See, I think David understands the maxim, show me, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Hear me. David's not saying we shouldn't nurture relationships with unbelievers. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm all over eating some wings with my neighbor and building relationships so I can present the gospel to him, but I just wanna love on him as well. Yes, he's dealing with who you share your heart with. And what David is saying is, I'm not gonna nurture relationships. Watch it now. He's not talking about people who sin. He's talking about people who have gotten comfortable with sin. <laughs> Did you hear that? He's dealing with patterns of behavior. David, in essence, says, I'm not going to get close with people who just don't confess, who don't repent, who aren't trying to walk in the light, who aren't trying to struggle their way into holiness. I'm just not gonna do that. Because David understands that the road to integrity is not a one-way road. It's a multi-lane highway with a carpool lane. I can't get there by myself. I gotta have others. There's a new technology Silicon Valley is pioneering. It's a piece of technology called the Embrace. Um, long story short, there's about 50,000 people a year who die of, of, um, of certain kinds of seizures. And there's a particular kind of seizure that's pretty devastating. It's like um, everything kind of shuts down and you just, it's, it's almost impossible to, to, to get this person out of their predicament. So what they've discovered uh, is a very non-invasive way of helping a person with this particular kind of, um, of seizure. Very non-invasive. It's almost embarrassing. What they've discovered through trials and tests is, is when a person has this particular kind of seizure, um, if they could have a loved one whose voice they're familiar with, just come and gently start to rub their hand call their name, they come out of it more times than not. 
So they developed this thing called the embrace. It's like a smartwatch for a person who struggles with seizures. They wear this smartwatch and then they kind of give it to specific loved ones who also wear this smartwatch. So when they have this certain kind of seizure, a signal is sent out. Uh, the closest loved one comes and just begins to rub their arm and just call their name. More times than not, they can begin to recover. It's the power of community. James 5.16 says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Times in my life when I'm struggling in real time with sin, there's a little phrase the Holy Spirit uses with me. He whispers to me, drag it into the light. So, so when, when something is in my life and it's, it's about to turn and become a pattern of behavior, Holy Spirit just said, drag it into the light. And I'll call one of my good friends and I'll just, I'll just confess, hey man, look, here's what's going on. In fact, here's what I've learned. Either we drag it into the light or we will be dragged into the light. You don't want that. That's why the Bible says, he who isolates himself is a fool. You can't get down the road of integrity by yourself. And you don't just need people who are Christians in name only. You need people who are actually trying to walk this thing out. You know, I was thinking about Jesus as I was putting this message together this week and I asked myself this question, what is the most compelling thing to me about Jesus? Like what, really, what's the most compelling thing to me about Jesus? Um, I thought about it. Um, it wasn't his teachings, although his teachings are absolutely amazing. Uh, in fact, I was just praying through the Sermon on the Mount this morning and man, I try to, by God's grace, live into the fullness of his teachings. It wasn't even his miracles and his miracles by very definition were in our spectacular. To me, the most compelling thing about Jesus is his integrity. David failed, but Jesus, who is the son of David, never failed. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And did you know he, he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies? And when it is all said and done, every single word that was ever prophesied over him in the scriptures will be fulfilled. He, he's a man of integrity. Psalm 15, talking about integrity, says he swears to his own hurt. Isn't that the cross? Jesus went to the cross when he could have called a legion of angels and gotten down. No, 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 no. No, he went to the cross because that's what he was called to do. And that's why on the cross he could say, it is finished. I started it. I finished it. He's a man of integrity. Listen to me. The biggest turnoff to the world about Christianity is a lack of integrity, which means the reverse has to be true. The biggest turn on to the world about Christianity has to be people who are walking in integrity, and that begins with Christ. So I don't want you to leave here going, I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do. No, no, no. Begin with beholding your Christ. 
Fix your eyes upon him. And out of that surrendered response, we live this thing out among others. So Father, we thank you. (laughs) Thinking now, God, of John Piper's words, all preaching is hypocrisy. I preach a perfect standard and I am far from that. I pray against self-righteousness. I pray against any notion that we can do this as independent contractors. And I just pray that this would be a body, Lord God, who, who is surrendering to your steadfast love, who's walking in community, who's making daily decisions to be people full of integrity, Lord God. And when, not if, when we fail, when we mess up, Lord God, that we would respond with counterintuitive, deep acts of integrity, which is confession and repentance. In fact, Lord God, in just a few moments, we're going to spend some time doing that. So hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.